Well, it's a real privilege to be here with you. We are in for an exciting week. What better topic to be thinking hard about than the end of the world? This topic is going to take us to the very heart of God and for his purposes for this world, which is then the framework for you to understand your own life. What we will discover as we read the Christian Bible together this week will challenge and change, I think, your assumptions, maybe even transform your plans and your decisions. And I've certainly been praying that this week will help you love God your Father more and have greater faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get into it. As I was researching this topic on the end of the world, I came across a most informative website. Let me read to you just a little bit of what I read on this website. It went like this. I feel like this needs a deep voice, so I will try. The final three and a half years of end-time tribulation began on December 14, 2008, when the first trumpet sounded. The result of that trumpet sound is the downward spiral of the world's economy and nothing will alter the course of that destruction. The destructive power that continues to increase during this tribulation will cripple the governments of the Western world and bring about World War III. Once the second, third and fourth trumpet have sounded, the United States will collapse as a world power. When the fifth trumpet sounds, World War III will be ushered upon the scene and will cause the death of billions. Then on the last day of this great tribulation, Jesus Christ will return and intervene to stop mankind from destroying himself. And the date that Jesus will return, well, according to this particular website, you can do the math. You can work it out, right? It started on December 24, 2008, and you add three and a half years, and that gives up a date that they name on the website of May 27, 2012. Now, when I read this back in April, I got very excited, because I thought Ancon Prep was suddenly going to be a whole lot easier, because <laughs> Jesus will be back by then. But now, here we are. Yet another prediction of the end of the world has failed to come about. There have been actually so many predictions of the end of the world that has now become an object of ridicule. As one website I found listed hundreds of predictions of the end of the world. And the, and the website said, guess what folks, we're still here. Predictions of the end of the world are not something that any sane, thinking person takes seriously. Or do they? See, what about global warming? Is that a realistic end-of-the-world scenario? What about coordinated terrorist attack with biological or nuclear weapons? Is that a realistic end-of-the-world scenario? What about global economic meltdown? Once upon a time, that would have seemed like a plot line for some sort of piece of airport thriller fiction, but not anymore. None of those end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenarios now actually seems quite so fanciful. 
And the prospect of that sort of end of the world raises a question for us at a personal level, I think. If that's what's going to become of us, what happens to me? The cosmic question always actually has profound consequences for the personal. And you can see some of the cosmic and personal type questions there on page 7 of your book. So if you haven't got your book open, you might like to open to page 7. You can see the cosmic questions. What will be the end of this world? Is there life for the universe? What's the future for humanity? And you can see the personal questions that flow out of those cosmic questions. What is my end? Where is my life headed? Is there a grander story that makes sense of my life? Is there a future for me beyond death? So when we're talking about the end of the world, we're talking about a grand story, a story of truly cosmic proportions, but that necessarily will frame and shape each of our lives. And so our first question really is, what is the grand story? What's the narrative that makes sense of our life, individually, corporately, personally, cosmically? What's the framework that puts all these pieces together? Now, the technical name for that, those sort of questions is eschatology. What is eschatology? Well, you can see there on your page, eschatology is formed from two Greek words, it's from the, from the word eschatos, which means last or end, and then the word logos, which is the word for word. So you can see there one definition I've picked out for you. Eschatology, then, is the study of the last things or end times in the light of the Scriptures. So eschatology usually means looking at things like uh, death, final judgment, heaven and hell. That's normally what people put under this heading of eschatology. But if we limit eschatology to just those four topics, I think we've made a mistake. We've missed a fundamental characteristic of how God works in the world. See, the Christian Bible tells us that from the very beginning, God has been taking the world somewhere. He's always had a goal or a purpose in mind. And all of God's dealings with humanity are shaped by this purpose, by the end to which God is taking this world. So really, all of the things that God has done, all of them are directed to the end. All of them are eschatological. And with that in mind, I think the second definition there on your page from G.B. Caird is probably more helpful. He says, eschatology is the biblical teaching about the destiny of the world and the working out of God's purposes in and through his holy people. So to understand the biblical eschatology, we're going to need to look backwards to what God has done as well as forwards to what He will do because they're connected. And it's worth noting a few other issues about eschatology before we go much further. You can see them listed there at the bottom of page 7. First of all, it is a bit ambiguous. When we talk about the end of the world, we can actually mean two different things, can't we? Uh, We can mean the end in the sense of the finish or completion. You know, at the end of this talk, we will have lunch. You know what that means. But we can also use the word end in the sense of purpose or goal. The end of this talk is that you might love God more. The purpose or goal of this talk. So when we talk about the end of the world, we just have to be careful about which one we mean at different times. 
because we'll use both meanings at different times. And I'm not going to spend time on the other issues listed there, except to note that when we talk about the end of the world, it's actually a topic that's quite ambivalent in our culture, because our culture is obsessed with the now. I'm not so interested in the future, especially long-term future, I just want to know about now. So it's actually a topic that's got a fair bit of ambivalence associated with it. It's also a complex topic, because we're going to talk about things this week that are outside of any of our experience. And that's going to be tricky sometimes. You're going to have to think hard about that. And thirdly also, it is a very pressing topic. See, because eschatology, trying to think about the future, what God is doing in this world, it arises in part out of the tension that we all experience between what the Bible says about God's character, that He's good, that He's loving, that He wants good things for us, and my experience. My experience is often a life, well, life sucks a bit. And that tension between God's character and my experience gives rise then to eschatology. What is God doing? What on heaven and on earth is God doing in this world? So it's a very pressing question for us. Okay, so part B. Now, what's the story? Some competing visions. Now, before I... um go on, I want to tell you about a game that I used to play. I used to play this game where you get a a person and you blindfold the person, and any game where someone's blindfolded is always a winner. You blindfold a person and put them in the middle of an obstacle course. And then everyone else, this is such a friendly game, everyone else would stand around the edge of the obstacle course and we would yell out instructions to the person with the blindfold, supposedly telling them how to get out of this obstacle course, except that most of the people were yelling the wrong information. And you were actually just trying to send them crashing into a fridge or whatever else you'd put in the obstacle course to make it interesting. The challenge as the blindfolded person was to work out who should you listen to. There were so many disputing voices, who should I listen to? Well, when it comes to eschatology, you're the person in the blindfold. You may not realise it, but you are constantly being bombarded with competing voices trying to tell you the big story. You hear one story from your friends, you hear another story from your family, you get another story from some uni lecturers, your tutors, from the media, from retailers, for goodness sake, implicitly or explicitly, They're all trying to tell you how it all fits together and which way you should go. You agree? That's right, isn't it? So before we look at the Christian understanding of the end, I actually want us to stop and listen to some of those other voices. Because I expect that there'll be aspects of those other voices that you recognise. And so what I've done is I've set out five competing visions for you in part B which is there on pages 8 and 9. Some of these are cosmic visions, some of them are personal visions. But it's helpful to wrap our minds around them. So view number one, nothingism, the bleak vision of scientific materialism. Now, according to this view, all you are is a bunch of atoms. There is no deeper meaning there is no deeper purpose. Uh, Nearly a hundred years ago now, the famous philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote these words. 
that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental co-locations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried underneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Here is a picture of humanity at the whim of an omnipotent and indifferent universe, destined to die, and the universe itself to fall to ruin, according to Russell, that's the story that raw science bequeaths to us, a story of unyielding despair. Pretty attractive, isn't it? But according to Russell, that is the story. That's the scaffolding of truth in which you must make sense of your life. It's like a bucket of icy water into your face. It's meant to shock you out of your comfortable delusions and force you to see the meaninglessness of your life. At different times, the physicists have told us that the universe will end in a big crunch, you know, some sort of mirror image of the Big Bang, which may or may not be followed by a big bounce with a new universe springing into being, or more likely, they now say the universe will end in a big freeze as it sort of eventually gets colder and colder, or indeed maybe the big rip as it expands faster and faster until it literally rips itself apart. However it happens, the verdict is pretty much unanimous. The universe will, as Russell put it, fall to ruin. That's the scientific conclusion. And you will fare no better personally. The end of the universe and your own end are identical. It's death for everyone. Nothing can preserve you, says Russell, beyond the grave. Death is the ultimate full stop. Another famous new atheist put it before his own death. There on the page, Christopher Hitchens, he said, Do I fear death? No, I'm not afraid of being dead because there's nothing to be afraid of. I won't know it. Death is a full stop. The end. And that cosmic vision has all sorts of consequences for us personally. Russell says the world is purposeless, void of meaning. Whatever hopes and fears you have this morning, whatever loves and beliefs you have, they are but the accidental outcome of a couple of atoms coming together in your space. And more recently, in a debate on Q&A in April, Richard Dawkins said this, he said, science is working on the problem of the antecedent factors that lead to our existence. 
Now, why, in any further sense than that, why, in the sense of purpose, is, in my opinion, not a meaningful question? Why is a silly question? Why is a silly question? You can ask, what are the factors that led to something coming into existence? That's a sensible question. But what is the purpose of the universe is a silly question. It has no meaning. So embrace your meaningless, friends. Stop searching for a purpose. The universe itself is the great power and it is relentlessly indifferent to you as it winds you down to your inevitable end and billions more with you. That's the bleak vision of scientific materialism taken to its logical conclusion. And you will find many people on our campus, in our city, who subscribe to that view. Maybe they won't be game to put it as extreme as that, but they are on the spectrum. So that's view one, nothingism. View two, all oneism, the bland anonymity of monism. Maybe at the end, actually, instead of extinction, maybe we all just merge back into a great oneness. That's the sort of end that's envisaged by, say, Hinduism where after many reincarnated lifetimes, you escape this cycle of entrapment and you merge into Brahman, like a, a drop of water falling into an ocean or a spark returning to the flame. Now, at a popular level, this sort of, we all just merge into the great oneness at death, this is reflected in a poem uh, which was written by a soldier, interestingly, who was going off to fight in Northern Ireland. And he wrote this poem to leave for his relatives in case of his death. And this is what he said. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I do not die. And I reckon that's uh, some of the same sort of thinking you actually get behind the force in Star Wars, courtesy of George Lucas. You can see there quotes from the great ones, Obi-Wan Kenobi. The force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. And as Yoda says... Death is an, I can't, I'm not going to do a Yoda accent. Death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the force. Well, that's spirit, that's all oneism. The great bland anonymity of monism. What's the third view here? The third view is spiritism, the bodiless souls of Greek immortality. So, in the thinking of the ancient Greeks, particularly Plato, all of us have two parts to our being. We have our physical bodies and our souls. And according to the Greek philosophers, it's your soul that is the real you. And at death, your soul is released from the prison of your body to escape the messy material world. I have a quote there from Plato. That soul, he says, I say, herself invisible, departs to the invisible world, to the divine and immortal and rational. 
thither arriving, she lives in bliss and is released from the error and folly of men, their fears and wild passions and all other human ills, and forever dwells, as they say of the initiated, in company with the gods. Now, I think the Greek version of that sort of immortal soul has had a powerful impact on Western society and our thinking about life, death and life after death. And you see it reflected often in the sentiment expressed at funerals. I don't know if you've gone to many funerals. I've gone to quite a lot, partly because I worked as a church pastor. One of the most frequently quoted poems at funerals, not by Christians, is this one by Henry Scott Holland, who actually composed it as a part of a sermon that he gave to mark the death of King Edward VII, He wrote this poem not because it's what he thought, he wrote it to capture what other people thought. But now everyone thinks it's what he thought, so I guess don't write stuff you don't believe. This is what, this is the poem he wrote. Death is nothing at all, it's called. Death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away to the next room. I am I and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, that we still are. Call me by my old familiar name. Speak to me in the way which you have always used. Put no difference into your tone. Wear no forced air or solemnity or sorrow. Laugh as we always laughed at the little jokes we enjoyed together. Play, smile, think of me. Pray for me. Let my name be ever the household word that it always was. Let it be spoken without effect, without the trace of a shadow on it. Life means all that it ever meant. It is the same that it ever was. There is an absolute, unbroken continuity. Why should I be out of mind? Because I am out of sight. I am but waiting for you, for an interval, somewhere, very near, just around the corner. All is well. I'm just waiting for you around the corner. According to this view, beyond death is a spiritual reunion with those we love. And I would say this is prominently the, probably the dominant note you will hear at a funeral today. But may I say this? It is not grounded in any evidence or even a particular philosophy. This is just sentimentality, a wish that people hold on to for comfort when they're forced and to face the awful rupturing of relationship that happens at death. It's beautiful, wishful thinking, but it's just wishful thinking. Well, the fourth view there, progress, the blind confidence of enlightenment modernity. Uh, The Enlightenment movement of the late 17th and 18th centuries elevated reason and humanity's capacity to improve our lot. You still see its effects, actually, in the optimism that you hear all the time about the capacity for science to solve the world's problems. We think science will cure cancer. We think science will solve global warming. That's because we're modernists. We believe in the power of scientific progress. I'm going to quote Bertrand Russell again here. He says, We want to stand on our own feet and look fair and square at the world. It's good facts, it's bad facts, it's beauties and it's ugliness. 
to see the world as it is and not be afraid of it. We want to conquer the world by intelligence and not merely by being slavishly subdued by the terror that comes from it. We ought to make the best we can of the world. And if it is not as good as we wish, after all, it will still be better than that which others have made for it in all these ages. A good world needs knowledge, kindliness and courage. It does not need a regretful hankering after the past or a fettering of the free intelligence by the words uttered long ago by ignorant men. It needs a fearless outlook and a free intelligence. It needs hope for the future, not looking back all the time towards a past that is dead, which we trust will be far surpassed by the future that our intelligence will create. The Enlightenment view is incredibly optimistic about humanity's capacity to do good in the world. But unfortunately, that Enlightenment optimism suffered a massive reality check in the early part of the 20th century when the world was plunged into two back-to-back world wars. Humanity's capacity for rational thought proved to be no insurance against our desire to dominate and indeed destroy each other. So you can see it there on your page, the response of Richard Bauckham and Trevor Hart. They say, horror must surely be to all those whose vision is not ideologically distorted, one of the most prominent features of 20th century history. As George Steiner puts it, the period since August 1914 has been the most bestial in recorded history. Furthermore, they say, we must observe that both technology on which the idea of progress sets so much hope and the idea of progress itself are implicated in the horror. Technology in this century has abundantly proved its value for evil as well as for good. Its advances have made possible unprecedented destruction in war and more efficient state terrorism. The 20th century's experience has showed how progress is a pipe dream. But the 20th century experience has also given rise to our final and more recent story, planetary pessimism the fear of the postmodern apocalypse. Uh, it's interesting that the atomic bombs that brought World War II to a close also then ushered in a new era with a new way of conceiving the end of the world, namely by a human-induced apocalypse. So through the 50s and the 60s, to, right through to the doctrine of mutually assured destruction of the 1980s, through to the new prospect of global terrorism in the 2000s, and now adding in global warming and the potentially catastrophic effects of climate change, prospect of global economic meltdown, all of it. The concern today is actually not for the collapse of the solar system, you know, in billions of years hence. I think most people today say we'll be lucky to make it another 200 years without destroying ourselves some way. Certainly that seems to be the view of uh, Senator Bob Brown, you know, the recently retired leader of the Green Party. This is part of what he said in a speech this year, back on the 23rd of March in Hobart. He said this, 
Surely some people like animals have evolved elsewhere. Surely we are not, in this crowded reality of countless other similar planets, the only thinking beings to have turned up. It's most unlikely. So why isn't life out there contacting us? Why aren't the intergalactic phones ringing? Here is one sobering possibility for our isolation, he says. Maybe life has often evolved to intelligence on other planets with biospheres, and every time that intelligence, when it became able to alter its environment, it did so with catastrophic consequences. Maybe we have had many predecessors in the cosmos, but all have brought about their own downfall. That's why they're not communicating with Earth, he says. They have extincted themselves. They have come and gone, and now it's our turn. So there's five competing visions of the end. Cosmic stories full of competing personal implications. And some of those you'll explore in your review groups. That's just a brief look, really, at the escalation scatological currents sweeping around us. But this week, we're not here really to go deep into those stories. We want to explore the Christian story. And that's the story I want us to turn now. Part C, the Christian story. Now, the Christian story revealed in the Bible, it's a big story. And it claims to put together all the pieces. The Christian claim is to answer all of the cosmic and personal questions you can come up with. And I'd suggest to you that it is the story that not only provides the most joy, the most hope, but is also the story that's grounded in actuality. It's the story that is actually true. And according to this Christian story, the universe is not devoid of meaning, there is purpose to our lives, and there is a surprising future for us as people God loves and for the universe as his creation. Now, if you are here this week still checking out the Christian faith, and I don't know where you're at in your own sort of journey of exploring spiritual truths... But whether this story is true or not is something that you've got to decide for yourself, isn't it? And I want to encourage you this week to check out the evidence. And I'm actually praying this week that this week will help you to sort out what's real from what's fiction, what's the whole story from what's just a part of it. And if you are still checking out the Christian faith, make sure you ask your questions. Say what you really think in your review group. Come and ask questions at question time. Talk to your friends about it. Find an EU staff worker and hassle them for some answers. Or, and here's another option, uh, come and have lunch with me. Um, I've decided I'm going to sit every lunchtime at the table in the very back corner over there. Now, that table is now, henceforth, decree, making now, that table is reserved for anyone who is still checking out the Christian faith and who wants to ask me some questions. So don't come and sit at that table at lunchtime if you're a Christian 
and you want to ask me questions about the dragon in Revelation or soul sleep or the rapture or some other burning issue, right? Breakfast, dinner, yes, go crazy, ask me all the crazy questions you want to ask, but lunchtime is reserved for those people who are checking out Jesus. So if you've got questions, and I mean this, any questions at all, come and chat with me over lunch. I'd love to chat things over with you. And if it makes more comfortable for you, bring along a Christian friend with you. But don't go home wishing you'd asked more questions. Okay, so let's start digging into the Christian story. I want to begin there in the middle from Luke 24. Now, to set the scene here in Luke 24, Jesus has died on a cross outside Jerusalem 36 hours previously. He'd been laid in a tomb on the Friday afternoon. His friends are devastated. Now it's Sunday morning and Luke records for us what happens next. Have a look there on your page. Luke says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women came to Jesus' tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has been resurrected. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And jumping then to verse 36. And as they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood among them. He said to them, Peace to you. And they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? Jesus asked them. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still amazed and unbelieving because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and he ate it in their presence. Then he told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written, The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Why am I starting here? Let me tell you. If you want to understand the Christian view of the end, you have to start here, at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You have to begin here because here... God opens the curtains. He opens the curtains so that you can see the future. In raising Jesus from the grave, the one true living God is saying, here's the future. Do you want in here? Do you want this? Now let's reflect then on this incredible moment for a while. 
What does it tell us about the future, about the end? Four things it tells us. First is this. It tells us that the end is physical, real flesh and blood. The end is not a disembodied spirit existence like the ancient Greeks thought, and as most people today seem to think. Under God, the future is bodied. We will live bodily, physically. Jesus said, touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. And then when they were still not sure, he asked them for something to eat. I presume it wasn't because he was hungry. It's probably because he's trying to demonstrate to them that he's a real person. He stood there and ate the fish. I guess if he was a ghost, he could somehow pick up the fish and eat it and just drop through to the floor. But it went into his digestive system because he had one, because he had a body. He was a real dude, alive from the dead, resurrected. That's pretty real. So the end is not some spiritual, soulish existence. The bodily resurrection of Jesus actually sounds the death knell for that view. The future is not an escape from the physical. The future is a real physical body, atoms, molecules, flesh and bones. If, and because that future is physical, that has a massive impact on how you see the world around you. In case we were ever in any doubt, the resurrection of Jesus is God's massive tick to the physicality of the universe. God doesn't rescue us out of the physical. He redeems the physical. The future is redeemed physicality, flesh and blood, atoms and molecules. If you were so inclined when you get to the new creation, if you wanted to really do it, you could give Jesus a wedgie. You could play stacks on with Jesus. You could sort of, a pinch and a punch for the first day of the month, Jesus. You could do that. I mean, you, you won't. <laughs> because you will just be in sort of absolute awe at his revealed glory. The revealed glory of a human being, though. The future is physical, real. That's your future. That's the Christian understanding of the end. But it's not only physical. The end is also transformational, immortal and imperishable. What happened to Jesus on that first Easter morning was not just a resuscitation. His old body was resurrected as something new. His old body wasn't there anymore. It was transformed, but he was raised with an imperishable body, one that would no longer decay or die. Paul puts it like this there on your page in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal must be clothed with immortality. The future is this transformed physicality. There will be no more decay, no more susceptibility to illness. 
There's no recycling here like reincarnation back into the same old decaying physicality. It's a qualitatively new creation, a renewed physical life, now immortal, imperishable. That's what you see when you look at Jesus' resurrection. That's the future. Thirdly, the end is also personal. Jesus is still Jesus. Now, I just want to point this out. It's not some new being that's resurrected. It's the same Jesus with this transformed body. Jesus is still Jesus. Notice how he points to his hands and his feet to show them that it's really him. Verse 39 there said, Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Why would he point to his hands and his feet? Did Jesus have sort of particularly distinctive feet? Oh yeah, look at those hairy feet. That must be you, Jesus. Well, actually he did. Not hairy feet, but he had distinctive feet. Because when you're crucified, it's your hands and your feet that bore the marks. That's where the nails went in. And Jesus is saying, look at the marks. It's really me. In the end, individuality is preserved. Jesus is still Jesus. And friend, in Christ, you will still be you. In all your created uniqueness. So yes, I don't know, maybe I will still be bald in the new creation. After all, as the joke goes, God only made so many perfect heads and the rest he had to cover with hair. I will still be me, you will still be you in the new creation. The end is personal. Notice this is not the Hindu vision, is it? You know, that that, that the future is some sort of universal just merging into one anonymous mass. No. We are created and recreated as personal, individual works of God. Transformed mightily, yes, in resurrection, but still me, still you, the end is personal. Fourthly, the end is real. It's a historical reality. This vision that you're seeing here of the future in Jesus' resurrection is not a wishful dream. It's not a creative fiction just to give hope when the universe provides none. The whole scope of Luke's account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection is that it is real, it is historical. Luke tells us right at the beginning of his account that what he is doing is providing a reliable, researched account. You can see there on your page, right from the beginning of Luke's account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, he says this, he says, It seemed also good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honourable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Or actually, as the Apostle Paul points out to the Corinthians, writing in about 54 AD, right? So just about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul can write this just 20 years later. He says, Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of them still alive. That's the key phrase, right? Underline that. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. 
Paul points out the fact there that you could, at the time he was writing, still talk to a large number of people who actually met the resurrected Jesus and could put their fingers into the holes. He says this, he he appeared to more than 500 once, most of them are still alive. You can go and check them out. Paul is happy for them to check out the eyewitnesses. Now, if I told you a story about my first annual conference, which was about 20 years ago, if I told you a story about it, I can remember it, right? 20 years to you seems a lifetime, literally. I, I remember 20 years ago, I can tell you stories of my first ANCON. I can tell you the story of the guy's underpants who went up the flagpole. I can tell you about sitting in the cold, cold room where there was one one pipe that had hot water running through it at the very back of the hall, and if you wanted to stay warm and not die during the talk, you had to get there early and put your feet, take your shoes off and put the socks on the pipe as you sat there with your... Br- I could tell you stories about it. And if you say, that's rubbish, there would be no place as impoverished a conference centre as you were possible... That it's, it's a fiction you're making up, Rowan, just to sort of, you know, oh, tough people of the olden days or whatever. Like, you're just making up these... Well, let me tell you, there were 78 people at that annual conference, most of whom are still alive. (laughs) And you can go and check out the story. It's not that long ago. Paul says this because he is absolutely certain this really happened. Jesus really was raised from the dead. It is historical, verifiable. Now, as I said, that's starting in the middle. That's a core part of the Christian message, that God's gospel that we announce is that there is hope for the world. Look at the resurrected Jesus. The end that is coming is physical, transformational, personal, real. But as I said, that is jumping into the middle. Just as we come towards the end of this talk, there is a bigger story which leads into that middle and then flows out of it. So we've looked at the middle, I now want to look at this briefly at the two ends of the big story. This is the end in light of the beginning. If you look on page 12, you can see there, I've chosen some sections of Revelation 21-22, that's on the right-hand side of the page, if you turn your book around, and also some sections from Genesis 1 to 3 on the left-hand side of your page, right? So I've picked some passages, the very first chapters of the Bible and the very last chapters of the Bible. Just put them there. What you notice if you read through them both is there are all sorts of references in the Revelation passage that refer back to Genesis right at the beginning of the Bible. It's a bit like a movie that is full of references to other movies, Unless you're familiar with all those other movies, you ain't going to get how awesomely clever this movie is. Well, the point here is you are meant to notice the similarities. We're meant to pick up the allusions and the references because they are actually making a point. And I'll tell you what the big point is. The big point of the similarities is this. What God will do in the future is the completion of what he began in the past. What God will do in the future is the completion of what he began in the past. 
So, for example, I'm just going to point out some things on the two sides. You might like to circle them, draw lines, right? Get these connections across the page. You can see on the left-hand side, in Genesis 1, verse 1, the very first bit, the Bible begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth. Jump to the right-hand side of the page. Revelation 21, verse 1, it ends with the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, right? There's the connection. Deliberate allusions. On the left-hand side... In the garden, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, you notice that there's a tree of life mentioned in the middle of the garden. And in verse 10, a river that waters the garden. Jump across to the right-hand column, Revelation, we see the same thing in the city pictured here in Revelation. In the final paragraph on the right-hand side, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, there's a river of living water running through the middle of the city. And in verse 2 there, in that paragraph, there's the tree of life growing on both sides of the river. So there's some clear similarities. There's also some wonderful improvements. So when you read through Genesis 2 and 3, you'll actually see how human refusal to listen to God results in us being cut off from the tree of life. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They've got no way back to the tree of life, which was the key to their immortality. Instead, they're going to just die in the dust. But in Revelation, you notice there, chapter 21, verse 4, we're told, death is no more. And in Revelation 22, verse 2, you notice the tree of life is available on both sides of the river and it is constantly in fruit, in season. So instead of being unable to re-enter the garden and take of the tree of life, in Revelation chapter 21, you can eat of the tree of life all the time. And we're told there of the city in Revelation 21, 25, the gates to the city are never shut. Whereas before you were cut out of the garden, now you can have 24-7 access. The gates are never shut, day or night. And similarly, if you look at the last two paragraphs, left-hand side of the page, in Genesis chapter 3, 16, 17, as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion, we're told there's going to be pain, hard labour. But jump across to Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, there's no more pain, no more crying, no more grief. Or down further, chapter 22, verse 3, final paragraph on the right, we're told the curse is no more. There's all these improvements from what's happened in Genesis to what's fulfilled in Revelation. And just two more, and we'll finish. In the garden, in the Genesis account, Adam and Eve, they define themselves away from God. That is, the way they define themselves in the Garden of Eden is by saying, God, we are not going to do what you say. We won't be defined by you. But in the vision of the end, in Revelation chapter 21, 3, verse 3, we're told, no, now people are his people and he is their God. The relationship between God and his people is fully restored. And then finally, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, there on the left, Adam and Eve literally hide themselves from the face. That's what the literal word is. They hide themselves from the face of the Lord God as he walked in the garden. 
And then what happens when you finally get to the, the city in Revelation chapter 22, verse 4? The very last verse there on the right-hand side. FaceTime is restored. We will see him face to face. So all these parallels between the creation account in Genesis and the vision of the future in Revelation, that is no accident. It is very deliberate. The one true living God is making a point. What I will do in the future is the completion of what I began in the past. So if you want to jot something down there on your page, you can write that the the end is God's completion and restoration of what he began in the beginning. And there's uh, two significant implications from this. First is this, the universe has a direction because God has a plan. Your life has a context because God, the one true living God, has a plan. The atheists are wrong. The universe is not meaningless and meandering. There is a plan in action right now. Right now, as you sit here, God is in the very process of fulfilling his good purposes for his creation, including you, and that plan and direction gives meaning to our lives, indeed to the entire universe. So the universe has a direction because God has a plan. That's the first implication. Second implication is this. It connects with our earlier observation about Jesus' resurrection. It's just this, that the ultimate future is earthly. The ultimate future is earthly. See, we usually think of the Christian vision of the future is about heaven. And there is a heavenly aspect to the future that we're going to explore as the week goes on, but the ultimate end, the ultimate future for those who want it, according to God, is earthly. Did you notice in John's vision in Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth. The entire created order is made new, including a new physical earth. And what you notice in John's vision in Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 is that the new Jerusalem, which stands for the people of God, it's a picture, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. Where's it coming to? It comes to the new earth. God announces that his home will now be with humanity. Ultimately, God comes to us. He makes his, our home, he makes his home with us in the renewed physical creation. The ultimate end is not us going to heaven, but a transformed physical life from heaven coming to the renewed earth. What's more, that actually makes sense of the whole of the Bible. The Bible is not a story, as I said before, of escaping this world to a new sort of heavenly world. It's the story of the rescue of this world, the transformation of God's good creation here from Genesis through to Revelation. And we're going to start to explore more of that tonight. So then there are two final things to note about this picture from Revelation before we finish off. And I'm now on, on to page 13. Page 13. 
the end, you notice here, is all about Jesus. The entire vision John is given is bracketed with important statements from the risen Jesus. I've got them there on your page, in, on page 13. Notice how Jesus describes himself. We'll start with what John says in Revelation 1, verse 17. When I, that is John, saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. Can you underline last there? And the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's at the beginning of the book of Revelation. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says the same thing again. Look, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Underline that. The beginning and the end. Underline that. Now, I just need to point out to you that Alpha is not a car. Omega is not a fatty acid found in fish oil. They are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is saying the same thing three times, in fact. He says, I'm the A and the Z. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. What does Jesus mean by that? I think what he means is that the end, the end of all things, is a person. The the, the, um, resurrected Jesus is the end. Jesus is the end. That's what we're going to explore this week. How Jesus is the end, the goal, the purpose of all that God has planned for his creation. How are all of God's purposes for his creation, including for you and me, how are they all realized, how are they all achieved in this person, Jesus, raised from the dead. That's what we're trying to explore this week. Uh, Adrio, Adrio uh, Koenig says, there on your page, reflecting on these same statements from the book of Revelation in the New Testament, he says, the eschatos, that is the end, is a person, not just a set of forthcoming things. This perspective, I think, radically changes how we think about the end. The Lord Jesus is the end, the completion. So you've come to Ancon probably expecting that we'll have a talk on heaven, a talk on hell, talk on final judgment, talk on the return of Christ. Now, we will talk about those things. But the centre which ties all those topics together is Jesus because Jesus is the end. So when Koenig wrote his book on eschatology, he said this, he said, the eschatology offered here is not primarily concerned with the last things, although, of course, some things will be discussed. Instead, this book is first and foremost about the last one, he whom the New Testament calls the end and the last one. Eschatology must be about him because he himself is the realisation of God's purposes in creating this world. That's the point. The future is all about Jesus, the end is all about him. And at its heart, that's what distinguishes Christian eschatology. A Christian understanding of the end 
is all about Jesus. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann there in the quote on your page put it like this. He says, Christian eschatology speaks of Jesus Christ and his future. It recognises the reality of the raising of Jesus and proclaims the future of the risen Lord. Hence the question whether all statements about the future are grounded in the person and history of Jesus Christ provides it with the touchstone by which to distinguish the spirit of Christian eschatology from that of plain old utopia. That is, a truly Christian eschatology will talk about Jesus and his future, not just how great it will all be in the future one day. So we're going to talk a lot about Jesus this week because he is the end. But the final thing then to note from this vision in Revelation is this. The end is invitational. The end is invitational. Right towards the end of John's vision comes an invitation there on your page. Both the spirit and the bride, that is the church, say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. The Christian vision of the end is an open invitation from God to you. What has been done, what has been made possible in Jesus, this amazing, transformed physical future, the dawning of the new creation, it's not imposed, it's offered. It's offered to anyone who wants it. And that reminds us that what we're thinking about this week is We're not thinking about this just to satisfy intellectual curiosity. It's not just about interesting ideas or ethereal speculation. This is a story that invites, that evokes a response. It asks the question, do you want in on this? God has designed it this way. The Spirit of God says, come, you see what I have in store for you? Anyone who is thirsty should come. Come and be satisfied. Here's the future. In the resurrection of Jesus, the renewal of all creation, do you want in? Are you thirsty for it? Then come, come and drink and be satisfied. So conclusion, the Christian story of the end is not a bleak story. It's a story filled with joy and hope. It's not a product of wishful thinking. It's grounded in the very real historical resurrection of a particular man, Jesus, from the dead. It's a story grounded in certainty, a story that will not fail because it's already succeeded. It's a story that's transformed millions and millions of people. Not because it's inspiring or attractive, though it is those things, but because of the power of him who raised Jesus from the dead has been at work in their lives, enabling them to share this first taste of this resurrection life. This, is, this Christian story is a story that is big enough for all human understanding. It, it, it can capture all of science and all of philosophy from economics to politics to ecology, is a story that is true for all people, for Jew, for Muslim, for Hindu, for Buddhist, to black, to white, to Anglo, to Asian. Here is a story for all to listen to because it is the story to end all stories. It is the story. The story of the one living true God and his son, Jesus Christ. The future is real. The future is physical, 
The future is transformational. It is personal. It's God's completion of what he began in the past. It's all about Jesus and it's an open invitation. Do you want it? Do you want in? Then come and drink and be satisfied. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for what you have revealed to us here in your Scriptures and more what you have done for us in the person of Jesus, your Christ, the Lord. We praise you for his resurrection. We praise you for drawing back the curtain and showing us the future that you have in store for your creatures and your whole creation. And we pray this week that as we bend our minds to understand this word that you have given us here in the Scriptures, that you would reveal yourself to us. We would know your truth. That we would long for the future that you have planned. And that we might come and drink and be satisfied. All praise and honour to you, glorious Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.